Hey everyone, I'm Pastor Matt Henderson, and today we'll be answering your relationship questions. You are watching Relationship Support. At Jill Taylor asks, what are some narcissistic red flags to look out for at the beginning of a relationship? Well, Jill, why don't you go watch the movie Zoolander, and if anything resonates at all, run. Cole Trickle says, is it a red flag my girlfriend has photos of Channing Tatum all over her bathroom? Cole, my question to you is, do you look like Channing Tatum? Because if not, then there's a red flag there, and you should probably run. Also, is she over the age of 13? At Carolina Reaper asks, my new girlfriend has a fear of Tide Pods. Is that a red flag? This is a red flag, but not for the reason that you may think it is. You see, it's likely that she has a fear of Tide Pods only to avoid doing the laundry. At Peter Quinn asks, should I be concerned my girlfriend has two phones? Well, Peter, in my experience, the only two people who ever have two phones are drug dealers and cheaters. If she has a burner phone and isn't dealing that devil's lettuce, then you've got a major problem in your relationship. Red flag. At Shake It Off 88 asks, this guy I like keeps asking what my zodiac sign is. Should I be concerned? At Shake It Off 88, this is a major red flag. What seems harmless in a zo asking a zodiac sign will likely turn into 12 years down the road drinking poison with 11 of his best friends to ascend yourself on a comet passing by Earth. That is a red flag. And this has been Relationship Support. So that's Pastor Matt at our South End campus. He's about, he's like that just kind of normally. He's a fun guy. If you're ever just around him, he's, he's funny. Uh, I enjoy him. Uh, I'm not Pastor Matt. I am a Michael Singer, and I'm the pastor here at our Lake Norman campus, the best campus. Come on, let me hear you, Lake Norman. Hey, I, I love the cool things we get to do as a church, uh, and I love the, the multifaceted. Like, there's a lot of different things going on. Uh, you know, ladies, you have your roller skate. I thought about, man, I should just preach this whole message in roller skates. How many of y'all back in the day were at the roller rink like I was, me and my sisters, yeah? Um, so a lot of great things going on. One, something that I personally enjoyed, really cool, that happened Saturday. We, we had all of our men get together at all the campuses at our central campus. Men, make some noise if you're in the house. <laughs> Man, what a great time. Uh, you know, like 250 guys came. We got together. You heard men just singing and worshiping God. Pastor Troy shared a great word to challenge us, encourage us, just to keep walking and chasing after God. And I love those moments, just like I love so many other moments at this church. And so I want to take a moment by way of hand clap, and I just want to honor God for giving us our pastors, but also this great church he's given us. So y'all give an honor for that. So as Pastor Matt so brilliantly led us into this series that we're going to start in this month, uh, it is all about relationships, but specifically, it's about the red flags that maybe we have seen uh, or maybe that we can discover when it comes to relationships. Red flags are not good things. These are things like, you know, when you're watching football, and I know the Super Bowl is next week, and they throw that yellow flag, you're like, uh-oh, hope it's on the other team and not my team. Hope they got it right. Uh, but we have instant replay. So red flags are just like that. They're just like a, they're not a positive thing. It almost is like this is the red flag of potential destruction. And so we want to talk about the red flags in relationships because there are very important relationships that we embark on in life. We have marriages that we embark on. We have family. So maybe you're a parent, have a child. Maybe you're a child, you have a parent. 
There are close friendships that we have. There's dating that goes on. And let me just tell you, if you're dating and you're thinking about marrying one day, this series is going to be great because at some point, there's probably going to be a little nugget you can grab and go, if this person ever does this, it's a red flag and maybe I'm not ready to get married because marriage will magnify everything. Good and the difficult, it will magnify it and you'll be left to what do you do when that is magnified. So let's talk about red flags and I'm going to start getting into my red flag by reading Genesis chapter 3. Back in the beginning, this is right when the serpent Satan has tempted Eve to eat the fruit. She ate the fruit. Adam ate the fruit. They disobeyed God, and now we get to this moment after their disobedience in Genesis 3, starting in verse 9. It says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. On this day in history, I believe that there was an injection of an effect of sin that created a red flag that we live with today. Now, this particular red flag, I think, is one of the sneakiest red flags that will creep into specifically our relationships. It is the red flag that I believe I can change the other person, or I believe that they are the ones that need to change, and I don't need to change as much as they need to change. Let's see it in the story. What happens? Adam is confronted by God. And what does God, I mean, sorry, yeah, by God. And what does Adam do? Uh, it's that woman you gave me. She's the one that gave me the fruit. She's the one with the challenge. She's the one with the issue. She's the one with the problems. You know what, God? I'm going to help you change her. Get her, God. Sick her. Get on her. Adam, in the midst of that moment, he told the truth. He explained exactly what happened. It was not a lie that Eve gave him that fruit. Not a lie at all. But in the midst of him being truthful, he was trying to be self-protecting. This is what this red flag does. This red flag of changing someone else or me looking at them like they need to change more than I do is it causes us to have a, a false self-protection and we avoid the hard work of self-reflection. So, it was easy for him to try to protect himself and cover himself up and blame Eve. But if Adam had taken one moment, just one moment, and self-reflected, like stopped and thought, I imagine he would have remembered the moment where God gave the command to not eat from the tree. And you know what he would have remembered? Eve wasn't even present when God gave that command. I wonder what would have been different about that situation if Adam would have just owned up to it instead of pointing the finger and saying, hey, this is her issue, this is her fault, she's the one to blame. I like how he said it too, this woman that you gave me. That's a cold slap in the face. Not a day when I'm talking about what I'm gonna be focusing on and this idea of we can't change people and this red flag, 
I am going to be focusing on one side of a two-sided coin. So let me tell you what I don't want you to walk out of here and think that I said, okay? So we have this recorded. I did not say this. I'm not telling you that you're supposed to be a doormat in every relationship and get walked over and it's only your job and they can just do whatever they want. I'm not talking about a doormat syndrome. I'm also not talking about the lack of you being able to share the needs with your spouse or somebody else in a relationship, the needs that you have, that maybe what they're doing or their actions, they're not meeting those needs, real legitimate needs. It is important for us to share our needs. Actually, when you think of communication, most of us live at the opinion level. We never get to needs and feelings, and that is where real relationship growth happens. So it's important to share our needs, but what's more important is how we go about sharing those needs. So I'm going to give you a little scenario, and then we're going to look at two responses to this scenario and see if we can learn, okay, when I'm sharing my needs, how do I do this in a way that is going to have the best and most benefit for this relationship? Here's the scenario. You have a married couple, and when they start pushing buttons and things start getting heated, you know, we all have a response that we do, a knee-jerk response that we want to go to protect ourselves. Some of us shut down. Some of us get defensive. Some of us start name-calling, whatever it is. In this particular couple, one of them, their knee-jerk response when the level and the temperature gets hot in communication is that they raise their voice and they start to yell. They get real loud. So how in the world can you respond to someone else is getting loud, where you still express your need, but you do it in a way that maybe has help to being beneficial. So, tech team, throw up the first response. You could respond like this. You need to stop yelling when you get mad. You need to realize you have a self-control problem. You are the reason we cannot have healthy communication. You keep this up, and you're going to force me to not even want to talk to you. Do you know how many times the word you was used? Eight. How many times was there I or me once? Did they express their need? Yeah, they expressed their need. I need you to stop yelling. They expressed that. But was it in a way that if you're on the receiving end of that, makes you go, oh, thank you so much. I love when you call out all the stuff that I'm doing wrong. It just makes me butterflies come out of my chest, and I just want to change. I'm like that little larva that's just going to burst into a butterfly. I don't feel that way when I read that. There is a way that you can respond that has better potential for helping the situation. Let's look at response number two. When we get into an argument or disagreement and you start raising your voice, I have a hard time desiring to continue the conversation. I was around so much yelling in my house growing up, I just tend to want to shut down. I know me shutting down is not helpful for healthy communication, but that is what I feel like doing. Do you know in that one, they said I or me five times, and they said you once? This is the beauty of what I like to call taking ownership of our stuff. In the first one, they said you, 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 almost to try to manipulate you to change. I'm going to change you because I'm going to change you by telling you all the stuff you're doing wrong. Whereas the second one was like, hey, this is what I need. They still express their need. I, I need the volume to come down, but it's because I have my own junk, and I'm trying to work and walk through this, and I know my tendency. I'm going to shut down, and I know that that's not helpful either. But they took ownership of that moment. I cannot express to you, and you probably know this already, 
how easy it is to fall into the finger-pointing blame game. It is so easy. You could have taken a picture of that and said, I'm going to work on this, and I can guarantee you the next time you get in that heated moment, it's going to be hard. You've got to pull that picture out and say, all right, I need to take ownership of this. Because it's way easier to just go, you, 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 you. I think it's like this set of identical twins. These identical twins not only have facial features and everything else in common, but the amount of pores on their skin, the way they sweat, their pheromones, their hormones, everything is exactly the same. If they belch or pass gas, it smells the same. They are the same in everything. I want you to understand, they are exactly the same. So one day, these, these identical twins decide, we're gonna stay home. And for four months, we're not gonna go out in public, we're not gonna bathe, we're not gonna brush our teeth, we're not gonna you know, put on any smell good potions. We are just gonna sit at home in our filth. So four months pass, and these twins decide, time to get back out in public. So one of them wakes up, throws on the sharpest suit you've ever seen. I mean, shoes that are like tic-tac brilliant, man. They are great. Gets their hair, combs their hair, just together. The other twin wakes up, finds some old dirty sweats in the corner, a shirt that got rips and stains all on it, gets those shoes that talk to you. You ever had the bottom of your shoes start coming off and start talking to you, got a hole in the shoe, hair disheveled, and they head out to the marketplace. You run into these twins. So you run into them, I have a question for you. Which twin stinks the worst? If you ask the twins, hey, which one of y'all you think smells worse? The one in the suit might be like, look at me. I don't stink as bad as they do. I got on this nice suit. But we all know the reality. They both stink the same. And don't we do that? I look at somebody and say, my junk ain't as bad as your junk because I got most of my junk together. I'm wearing my proverbial suit. But you, <laughs> those nasty sweats and stuff, you got to stink worse than I do instead of remembering that we all got a little bit of stink on us. We all have some stink and it's easy to point out someone else's thing and not pay attention to our own. And I love Paul because he actually is talking to the church in Rome, the believers in Rome, and he's talking to two big groups of people. You have the Jewish people that are there, and then you have a lot of the Gentiles that are there. And he starts getting on to them and correcting them because they're arguing about these things that Paul refers to as these petty things they're arguing about. The Jews are saying, to honor God, you have to be careful what you eat. You can't eat everything. The Gentiles are going, wait, we're eating everything, but we still honor God. And he lists all these things and he's saying, look, people, this is not a sin issue. This is a personal conviction issue. Get over yourself. Stop pointing the finger at each other. But then he drops this wonderful nugget in here. And so whether we're dealing with a relationship with our spouse or our kids or somebody else, and we, it's just a, a personal conviction thing, or we're having a challenge because there's a real sin issue, Paul drops a nugget in Romans that we all can take and walk out of here with that'll change us. Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. He says, but you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you... Why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written. And then he quotes something from what we call the Old Testament. For the Jews there, it was from the Hebrew Bible, because they'll understand this scripture when he quotes it. He says, as I live, Isaiah 45, 23, as I live, says the Lord, 
Every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Do you know one of the most sobering things we can do when we get into that, I'm going to change that person game? I'm going to blame that person game. One of the most sober, sobering things we can do is remember verse 12 in this nugget of verses. Because verse 12 says that you and I, we will all give an account of ourselves. So my relationship with God, my believing in Jesus gets me into heaven. Those people that don't, they will be in hell for eternity. But when I show up to heaven, I'm not like, oh, man, look at my mansion. Pastor Sam's mansion is way bigger than mine, but I'll cut his grass for him. This is great. Streets of gold. Holy, holy, holy. God is great. That's not all that happens. The Bible says there's going to be a judgment seat for those that enter heaven. We're going to be judged on ourselves, our life. I like to tell married couples this or couples getting into marriage. I say it a lot, so if you've heard it, it's going to be the broken record of Michael singing the same song. When I sit before God and God says, Michael, tell me about your life. How was your marriage? I'm saying, oh, God, good question. I mean, you know Jalay. <laughs> I mean, she was, she was just rough. She talked rough to me. God, like, no, I didn't feel respected ever. And just she, you saw how she used to turn the toilet paper. It's supposed to go over. We know that. God tells us that we're over, not under. That we're the head, not the tail. Like we're supposed to get over the things that are holding us. So it's definitely over. It's scriptural. You saw the way she acted, God. Like she just, you know what God's going to do? He's going to look at me and be like, do you understand how questions work? I didn't, like, who is Jalay? I didn't ask you nothing about Jalay. But remember, Michael, what I said in my word about how you're supposed to be as a husband? Did you do that? Did your, did your husbandry line up with that? For all of us, God is going to say, hey, look, it's not about the other person. It's about me. It's about you and what we did with that. And I believe that if we can start to make this shift and we can go from changing other people to changing ourselves, then there's something we'll begin to see. We'll begin to see that we begin to look beyond the circumstances and we'll actually discover our motives. That the circumstance won't cloud out what God wants us to see internally so we can see the motives of what he has and what we're doing, why we're doing it. I love forgiveness and the principle and the command of forgiveness. God commands it he doesn't offer it out as a suggestion. And I love how God looks at forgiveness when it comes to himself. He says this in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. He says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions, and I love this part, for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. When God talks about forgiveness, he reveals to us, even before Jesus came, even looking back at this prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah, who prophesied about the Messiah and Jesus who was coming. He said, the reason why I offer forgiveness and I desire that for everyone is because of the motive of my heart. It's really about me. The reason why I sent my son is because I desperately want a relationship with everyone. And I lost that in the garden when sin entered. And it created a gap. And I've been trying to fill that gap with everything. And I'm going to send my son because there's nobody worthy enough to fill that gap. Because I desire the relationship so much with everybody. And so he sent his son. 
That's why John 3.16 does not say, for God so loved the world that he reminded us we would never live up to being in a relationship with him. He said, for God so loved the world that he sent his son so that we could be in relationship with him if we choose it. Forgiveness is about us. It's for us. Has nothing to do with the other person. But what so easily happens is we are holding on to unforgiveness because it gives that false protection. It makes me feel like I can continue to be mad towards them because they hurt me that deeply. It tells me that, you know what, I don't have to forgive them because that will give them a right to do whatever they want to do. And it will give them a free pass in this situation. I think if I forgive them, I have to be back in relationship with them. And that's not true. Forgiveness is a command because God looks at us and he says, your unforgiveness is holding you captive. That other person probably could care less. They're living their life. They're not thinking about you. But you know what we're doing? We're surely thinking about them and we're not living our life. So he gives us forgiveness to show us that whenever we move beyond the circumstances, then we really get to the motive. And when we get to the motive, that's when God can begin to do something in us and he can actually change us. King David actually talked a lot about how we need to look at deeper motives of things. He was very poetic. He was a musician. So he wrote a bunch of poetry to God. And in Psalms, you read a lot of this. And one of the Psalms, he's writing, having a poetic moment. And he's telling God, God, you know everything about me. When I get up, you know me. When I stop at Starbucks and pay $7 for that drink, you're there. God, you know everything. When I lie down, you're there. God, matter of fact, even way back in my mother's womb, you knit me together. You knew who I was going to be. You knew the gifts of who I was. And then he even goes as far as saying, how precious are your thoughts to me? So you start reading this Psalm 149, and it's beautiful. But then he takes a turn, and he says something that's like, what? So in verse 19 of Psalm 139, he says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. When I read those verses and I think about what Paul's doing, what Paul's really doing for me is he's showing all of us how we truly can side with God. And it looks like this. When we truly side with God, we say, God, the sin that you hate in other people, not the people, but the sin you hate in other people, I also hate. But I also open myself up for you to reveal the sin that's hiding in me. So it's not just about the sin that's in other people, but it's also an opening up of that self-reflection to say, look at the sin in me. Do you know if David hadn't written verse 23 and 24 where he stopped and said, search me, O Lord, then all this psalm would have been, would have been a man that was talking about how self-righteous he was. A man that said, I know God better than everybody. He's created everything. I see him in everything. Matter of fact, I'm so holy and righteous that just like God has righteous anger, I have the same anger towards people that are wicked and people that are in sin. But he didn't stop there. He penned verse 23 and 24. 
And I personally think he penned it to remind me that self-searching will always keep us from becoming self-righteous. Self-searching will always keep us from becoming self-righteous. We see this in all of our relationships, but married people, I want to talk to you for a minute because I said earlier that everything's magnified. And if you're married, you know how it is to be the one feeling like you dressed in the nice suit and the other one has on their sloppy pajamas. But you both stink the same. But it's hard to see that because I'm dressed nice. What you have going on, I don't have a problem in that area. So get your stuff together. Why is it so hard for you not to talk about people? I don't have a problem not talking about people. Why is it so hard for you to stop looking at that stuff that's not beneficial? I don't have a problem with that. Why is it so hard for you to just gossip? Why is it so hard for you to just lay around and not do something? Why is it so hard? So easily in marriage, there will be things that you just naturally fall in line with God on, you naturally have given to God, and you just are already walking in that arena. But we don't self-reflect and remember that I know you're struggling in that arena. I don't know how to, what struggle looks like in that arena, but I do know what struggle looks like with this sin. You have your sin, I have my sin, and I know the struggle, and I'm going to come and join you because when I reflect, I realize that I have my own issues, I have my own problems, and I'm not going to be self-righteous. I'm going to keep self-searching so that I don't get in the finger, blaming, point your finger at the other person, game. All right, Michael, I'm self-searching. I'm trying to work on this. You know, I'm really trying to look at me, Michael. I'm going to stop saying you, 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 and I'm going to say some eyes and throw some eyes in there and try to own up to my own stuff. But, Michael, I got to tell you, this is tough, man, really tough, because they're still there, and they're still acting shady, and they're still a knucklehead, and they are still got their junk going on. It's really hard, Michael. It's hard, Michael, for me to find hope in anything. Where is the hope in all this self-reflection, Michael? Am I just supposed to sit here and be like, oh, or is there hope? There's this person that got tired of watermelons rolling around in their refrigerator because a watermelon is oblong, and they were tired of the size of watermelons. It takes up most of the refrigerator. So they decided to do something about it. They decided to grow a watermelon in a box, a small little box. And they grew that watermelon, and they were astonished at the end of the process because the watermelon growing in the box, actually, when it grew to full size, was shaped like a square. Beauty of being able to place that small little square in your refrigerator. Do you know that that watermelon, though it looked like a square, it was still a watermelon? They cut it open and it was red, like rich red. Had seeds in it. It was beautifully green on the outside. They didn't change a thing about the watermelon. But you know what they did change? They changed the environment that the watermelon was growing in. Here's the hope in self-reflection. The hope in self-reflection has nothing to do with changing the other person. It has everything to do with our willingness to reflect on ourselves and change the environment. Maybe next time when you're tired of your spouse, you're tired of that friend, you're tired of your kids, you're tired of your parents, what if we just stop and pray and change the environment? What about I deal with my junk and I realize the hurt and pain I have and I realize that I have my own knee-jerk reactions and I decide, God, you know what? This pain has really been hard 
And I know that I respond out of that pain. Will you heal me, God, and will you work on my stuff so that when they respond, I don't push a button back. I remove the button, and eventually we find a place where we can communicate again, where we can draw back close again. It's our willingness to understand that God's greatest tool we have is to start by changing the environment because that little spark can create a fire that can warm your relationships up like nothing else down the road. And God implemented this even when he wanted to have a people group that would worship him alone, that would see him as king because there were a lot of people they knew him as God, but they had these other idols, and so there was a mixture of all this different stuff. And God said, I just want to be Lord. I want to have a relationship with a group of people. And so in order to obtain that, he started by changing the environment. When we look at Genesis chapter 12, he's talking to this man named Abram that we might know as Abraham because he changed his name down the road. And Genesis 12 verse 1 says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. What's the first thing God did in order to get to a group of people that he could have a relationship with that would worship him and he could show them his, his grace and his love and his power and his miracles and just pour blessing on them? First thing he did was change Abram's environment. He wanted Abraham to understand and to be the beginning and to be the leader and to be the father of this group but he needed to change his environment because what I didn't tell you is where Abram lived, they knew about God and loved God, but they also had little idols that they had mixed in with all their worship, even in Abram's family. And God said, in order for you to see what I want you to see about yourself and about what I'm calling you to, I need you to remove, need to remove you from the environment that you're in. When I was in college, and then the you know, two, two and a half years out of college, I worked at Walmart. And my favorite job was the latter years of working at Walmart. Favorite job ever at Walmart was whenever I got to work back in receiving. And in receiving, we got to check in vendors. So the milk guy would come, we'd check in, UPS drop off, you know, Little Debbie, all those things. They, everybody come in, we'd have to check in their stuff. And it was fun. I loved it mainly because I got to interact with those vendors. And me and some of those vendors, we just really vibe well together. We would laugh and joke and have a great time. And there was this one vendor that I enjoyed and I liked, but we didn't have the same connection as some of, like, the milk guy. Uh, I wish I could remember his name, but me and him got along really well. I liked the guy, but we didn't, we didn't know each other that well. And he would, on different occasions, he would either tell me jokes or tell me stories, and they'd be vulgar. And I would laugh it up. <laughs> Just laugh with him. Until one day, God began to convict me. And he said, Michael, you have a relationship with me. You know, in Romans where it says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. He's like, you're laughing at this guy telling this vulgar stuff. You're conforming to whatever he's doing. You're not showing him anything differently. So I made a decision to act on that conviction. I said, I'm just going to stop laughing at his coarse, vulgar jokes. That's what I did. I didn't look at him when he told something vulgar and say, how dare you say that to my Christian ears? I didn't get mad at him. I didn't tell him how dumb it was. I didn't tell him he was going to hell. I didn't try to change him. I didn't do anything. I just stopped laughing. And do you know, after a while, I guess he just got the picture because he stopped telling. He stopped telling all these coarse jokes. I never told him a thing. All I did 
because I changed the environment. I just took ownership of what I could take ownership of myself, and it changed that entire environment. And here's what I believe. I believe when we really grasp this concept and we begin to change the environment around us instead of trying to change other people, I really feel like we're going to discover there's a hidden gem that God has for us. It's this precious piece of gold that he has waiting for us in relationships. And it's the understanding that God's conviction always has longer lasting results than my convincing. God's conviction is always going to have longer lasting results than my own personal convincing and trying to make them change and see where they need to change. I want to end with a couple stories today from the Bible. And it's two different stories, but it has the two same sisters in it. It's the sisters of Martha and Mary. And, you know, you read about Martha and Mary and, you know, God, Jesus talks about having a very close relationship with them and with their brother Lazarus. But the first instance and this interaction with Martha and Mary and Jesus is found in Luke chapter 10. Jesus and his disciples have been moving along traveling, and it says this in verse 38. While they were traveling, Jesus, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Just one thing, Martha, is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken from her. You see what's going on? Martha has a moment where Mary's not culturally doing what she's supposed to be doing as a woman of a house and showing hospitality. She's not helping Martha out. And what does Martha want to do? She wants to change Mary. And in order to change Mary, she institutes and tries to get the teacher, the rabbi, Jesus, with his authority, kind of like Adam did. Jesus, sick her. Get her. We look in the next book of the Bible, John, and in that moment, Jesus didn't, he didn't sick Mary. He actually confronted Martha. And so we, we read a story in John where Jesus interacts with Martha and Mary again, but this time the situation's a little different. Their, their brother, Lazarus, is sick and about to die. And Jesus is away, and they get a message to him and said, Hey, Lazarus, whom you love, he's sick and about to die. Can you come? Because you know if you can come, there could be something that'll change. And Jesus does something that seems crazy to the disciples, and he just waits like a few days, and he doesn't leave right away. But as he does leave and he approaches Bethany where they live and he enters into the town, we pick up in John chapter 11 and we see the response of Martha. John 11 verse 20, as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, 
I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Then he asked her a question, puts the ball in her court. Do you believe this, Martha? And I love her response. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you actually are the Messiah that we have been waiting on as Jews. That you are the Son of God who has come into the world. When I read these two stories about Martha, it gives me this thought, and I wrote this down. It says the benefit that we find in our relationships is not in our ability to change other people. Instead, it's in our willingness to allow God to change us. The benefit, if we have relationships, I know we all won't benefit from our relationships. I can just tell you, I can guarantee you, it is never going to come from wanting to change that other person. But it will come if we're willing to allow God to change us. I can't prove that the story in John chronologically came after the first encounter that Martha had with Jesus where she was complaining about Mary sitting at his feet and not helping. There's a lot of details that you read in John around that story where Lazarus died that you could probably high percentage say that the one in John was after the first encounter. However, John and Luke didn't always write things exactly chronologically, but let's just wonder and think, what if a Martha who was brilliant at serving people, who understood hospitality, who took in a rabbi, a teacher, and honored him by opening up her home. And in the midst of all the great things about Martha, she still had the finger that she wanted to point and change her sister. But then Jesus gets in her business and he changes, and he speaks to her, and he shares her something that looks further beyond the circumstance of where she's living, further beyond the mask of, I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do, down to her heart that says, it's not about what you're supposed to do, it's about who I've called you to be. What if the next encounter she had with Jesus was him coming to see her brother who had pretty much died. And she looks at him and Mary says the same statement that Martha says, but she looks at him and says, had you been here, I know that my brother would not have died. But it wasn't a statement accusing him. It was a statement reverencing him because she turns right around and says, I know that as long as you walk with God, that God will do whatever you ask him to do. And then she ends it with the most powerful statement, showing that she gets it. There were a lot of Jesus' disciples at this point that still didn't quite get it. But she gets it. You are the Messiah. You're the one that we've been believing for. You're the one that's going to come to wash away all of our sin. You're the one that is going to give us a relationship back with a God that has loved us through good times and bad times. You are the son of the living God. And your death and your resurrection will be an opportunity for all of us to come back into relationship.
with God. If you will, stand to your feet with me. You're going to walk out of here, and no matter how much you've gotten out of this message, no matter how much you've heard in God's Word, no matter how much you feel like God is just challenging you and encouraging you, no matter how much self-reflection you have done before, that you've done today, or that you're going to do, and it's still going to be tough, and we're still going to miss it. But I'm here to tell you, when those times come and it's hard and we miss it, it is a lot easier, more hopeful, more peaceful when we can get back on the right train because we have a relationship with God. That He convicts us so that something can shift in us because He wants that same relationship that we want to be great, He wants it to be great also. And I can tell you, if you don't have a relationship with Him, you're going to feel like you're doing it on your own and you're going to wear out. Might be a year, might be three years. And just the feeling of wanting to give up is going to be on you hard. And that's where God, when you have a relationship with Him, He whispers and says, it's worth it. You remember my son? He died on a cross. You're not hanging on a cross yet, so keep taking steps. It will change. In my time, it will change. But in the meantime, just do what I've called you to do. Just self-reflect. Just take your nice suit off and realize that both of you stink. And jump in the shower and let me wash you. Close your eyes with me. Because I want you to just really reflect and think about yourself. I talked about self-reflection. Let's do it right now. If you're here and you've never experienced a relationship with God, it doesn't make life easy. But it does make life fulfilling and you'll see things finally that you've never seen and now you'll have an opportunity to change those things because God has shined a light on it not to talk down on you but to reveal so you can be a better you the person that he designed you to be that your relationships will flourish because you have changed the environment he simply wants to change your environment and your eternal destination all you have to do is say God I, I want you if you're here today and you want to say, God, I want a relationship with you, I just want you to put your hand up. And once you've put it up, you can put it right back down. You're just letting God know, I see your hand. Thank you, ma'am. I see your hand. Thank you, sir. Thank you in the back. I appreciate it. Anybody else? Just God, I see your hand, ma'am. Thank you. Now, I know that we all struggle with this finger pointing and want to change people. And I know God is a good God, so I know He's been talking to every one of us in our own special way, and He's brought up things that are just for us. And if you're here, I want you to acknowledge what He's brought up. If you're willing to begin to change yourself, just raise your hand and say, God, I know that I tend to point the finger. God, I know I tend to blame them. I know I want to change them. I know all that. I just want to work on myself. You can just put your hand up and back down just so God sees that your response. Say, God, I hear you. We're going to say a prayer. If you raised your hand for anything in here today or you're just here and you have a strong relationship with God, you love God, I want everybody to repeat this. Say it loud where you can hear yourself. It's important to hear yourself say these words. So repeat this loud after me. Say, God, I love you. And I thank you. In the midst of my circumstance of sin, you were motivated out of your love for me. You sent your son. He died for me. And he raised from the dead for me. So now, I want to move forward. 
I want to search myself before I blame others so that you can allow me to change the environment and see the beauty in all my relationships. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's give a hand.